Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. On today's episode of the podcast, I speak with my dear friend, Jeff Berkland. Jeff is the CEO of Berkland Associates, the nation's leading fractional CFO service provider. He shares some really great insights for founders looking to raise capital. We go into depth on different vehicles like safes and venture debt and convertible debt. We talk a lot about setting yourself up for success, aligning with investors, and just hear a lot of like great stories on what to do and what not to do as a founder raising capital. So on with the podcast. Jeff, welcome to the Growth Pioneers podcast. Good to have you on today. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's uh, been a while since I've actually been able to see you in person. So I'm looking forward to uh, reconnecting with you here in the not too distant future. Yeah, same here. <laughs> That's going to be nice. Yeah. So for the listeners, Jeff and I have known each other for, oh gosh, I don't know, what, 10 plus years now we've been in forum together? Right. Yes. Right about then. About when, soon after my son was born. Oh, uh, yeah. It's been quite the journey to go through forum and see you grow your business and go through all the different elements of life together. It's a real treat for me to be able to bring this conversation to our community. So I, thanks for taking some time with me today. <laughs> of course. It's always a pleasure. I enjoy forum with you as well, Doug. I think the best of you. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and a little bit more about your company, Berkland and Associates? Okay, sure. And that, that'll help the listeners see the perspective that I come from and you know decide how it fits for them. So really quick, you know, engineering undergrad, went to AT&T, worked in operations, uh, went to business school, went to Harvard Business School for a couple of years, and then came out of business school in 98 out to the Bay Area during the first, you know, that big bump bubble was at a company that I joined hundred people. They were 2000 people <laughs> a year and a half later and public. So it was, it was a wild ride. And that was the time, you know, when I just got hooked on startups and then uh, worked in marketing for a little while, learned that wasn't quite my jam, happened into finance, learned that was my jam and everything went crazy well since then. I had a consulting business that I started with a partner, sold that about 15 years ago, and then started doing part-time CFO work and have since grown this business that does finance for startups. So from part-time CFOs to um, bookkeeping, accounting, and tax, we've grown that to 400 active clients as of, I think a few days ago and all over the U.S. And it's been fun. Congratulations. Now, I mean, you're a very humble guy. I mean, is, aren't you like one of the, the largest or firms of your type? Oh, in this space? Yeah. I, I think we are. Yes. Yeah. We're at least among the top the top three in the space. If you, if you look at sort of C to C stage companies and doing finance for them. Yeah. It's always fun when I talk to a startup and, you know, we're looking at their information and they reference Berkeley Associates and I'm like, oh, I know those guys. I really know <laughs> those guys. Yeah. Well, it, what's also fun is when you're talking to somebody and you find out they're a client when you're talking with them. Yep. And they say, oh, there's a Berkland? I just thought it was a name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was a good day. Yeah. No, that's fun. It's like when you see your, like, I remember the days when I had the paddleboard business and you would just see a paddleboard on someone's roof and you didn't know whose car it was. You know, it's kind of the same thing. You get out there and you see the impact of your work out in the world. Yeah, it's nice to see that. That's for sure. You know, in all the years we've been informed together, or maybe I blocked this out, I did not know that you started in marketing. Like, it just seems like being a CFO is so much more your jam. So oh. gonna... <laughs> well, thank you. It is. It took me a few years to find that out, unfortunately. I wasn't bad enough to, well, to get quired, fired for my marketing performance. I ended up getting fired from one of them because I, I found accounting fraud. <laughs> <laughs> I guess finding accounting fraud is a you know a good sign that you should probably be an accountant or a CFO yeah, or something stuff. related to that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's so. funny. So, like, what was your reason behind starting Berkland Associates? So I started, you know, as an individual contributor, a part-time CFO for startups, and in fact, I did that for about five years. But that's kind of a side story. And the reason that I did that was I was coming out of my previous consulting business and had been investing, angel investing, in a few startups, so small scale. And my observations looking look at them was that they had strategic finance needs. They needed to build a model. They needed to think about the cap table. They needed to think about the future of the business in financial terms and make decisions that way. But they did not 
have full-time strategic needs, finance needs. And so I just said, hey, I'll do that. Coming out of marketing, wasn't that awesome? And, and so I did, you know, I did it for free for a bit. I took equity and then grew from there. The experience was interesting because nowadays, I think when you talk with a VC in the area or you talk to somebody in the ecosystem, they'll say, of course, early stage startups need part-time CFOs. Back then, the reaction by the vast majority was, what are you, crazy? That's a full-time role. And I guess I was crazy enough. I guess I had a beginner mind and I didn't see it. Well, you definitely saw it. And what an interesting you know, niche now, you know, it's actually a big need. Obviously, you've grown with the startup community. I can tell you back when I was running Priya, actually, you know, we had bookkeepers, but what I really needed was someone strategic to help think about, you know, how to raise around, how much to raise, what the valuations meant. What does that really mean downstream? I mean, there's just a lot more complexity to it than people think. And yet I couldn't afford a full-time CFO. And I think at the time, I think my investors were kind of in that old camp of like, you don't need a CFO, you just need someone to kind of do your books. We thankfully had a lot of customers say, you know, they're so glad they they had us. But you know, the other things that, that you have to think about besides just like, what's the valuation that makes sense? You know, when do you raise again? Thoughts about like, what metrics make sense for the business? How's the business performing relative to those financial metrics? Because you don't always perform great relative to all of them. So does it make sense? Does the business's performance make sense relative to those benchmarks? How do you think about the future? How much cash should you spend per month? And where should the cash be invested? Engineers, marketing, sales? Of course, we don't have all the answers to those questions, but I think we're a very, very important voice in those. Yeah. And so what, I mean, who's your ideal customer, Jeff? Like what kind of talk to me about, like, what's your ideal size of company or stage or where, where do you guys usually come in and, and provide the most value? Yes, sure. So we come in as bookkeepers typically when a company is somewhere on the order of five to 10 to maybe 15 people. So it's typically around series seed, um, maybe slightly before, but we can come in as bookkeepers then. And then as part-time CFOs, we're usually coming in at around 15 to 20 to 30 people. Um, so hovering around series A okay. is when we typically come in as part-time CFOs and then come around, you know, post B to maybe close to C, that's when we start moving out and start exiting and full-time people need to come in. Great. And do you have a particular sector? I mean, you, do you specialize in SaaS companies? Do you take all comers? Like what, where's your sort of specialty? Well, you know, the, the broad specialty is anything that's venture backed or, you know, wants to be venture backed. They may not, they may still be a little too early, but more specifically SaaS is definitely, that was our bread and butter to begin with. Um, we're also in FinTech, consumer and healthcare. So that covers, you know, if you were to like look at it, that's pretty much all VC, but that's where we are right now. Yeah. And so not as much in kind of biotech and hardware and things like that, more of that's the right. software. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, we certainly have some customers like that, but that's a fair statement. Yeah. No, no. It's, and I, you know, I've got to imagine you get a lot of knowledge share. I mean, one of the things that was so interesting to me learning about for SaaS companies in particular, how common the venture metrics are like for you to be a series a company you know you have to have like a, you know you probably know more accurately than i do but it was something like a million dollars in arr and a cac to ltv ratio of like three or five or something along those lines so i got to imagine when working with a bunch of SaaS businesses you're able to kind of look across and really see what are best practices well that's true and then also what i think a lot of people don't realize is just how complex those metrics are you think it's easy to say a million arr but what about the company that has a POC where the, where the customer has agreed to the POC and the POC automatically converts proof of concept, by the way, for POC. Got, yeah, thank you. I was going to ask you. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that automatically converts, assuming they don't tell you they don't want to convert in three months, but then you've got no history to prove that you've got conversions. So are you going to count that as ARR when you sign the contract and the POC starts? Are you going to wait until the POC ends? And that's just a small example of complexity that comes that usually comes in. That's a very small example. There's, and so it's it's funny to look at that. Yes, we know the benchmarks, but we also have a sense for how to treat the complexity, how to treat, uh, what about, you know a customer's gonna churn, but they've still got four months left on their contract. Do you count them as churn now or do you wait? What if they didn't sign their contract and you're still negotiating with them? And, and so, by the way, the, the brief answer on that, it, for anybody that wants to know, is just talk with your board. Like, have an open conversation about how to treat this stuff so that everybody's on the same page. And that conversation is really helpful to helping understand how the board sees the business and how you see the business and what are the key 
points around the business. Yeah. And this is where I think, you know, just, I mean, just through that conversation, I'm immediately like, boy, you need to hire someone that knows what they're doing. I mean, I see a lot of startups, you know, obviously for, for cash flow reasons, try and delay certain expenses. You know, they don't want to bring on an attorney in the beginning, or they don't want to bring on the right people. But ultimately, and obviously there's discernment that's involved in this, delaying some of those important strategic people cost you more over the long run. You know, if you set yourself up in a position where you make some poor financial choices, you know, by doing it yourself versus bringing in somebody that can really hurt you long term. Unfortunately, I have a lot of experience doing that or or not bringing in an attorney until I have a real problem that could have been solved by having him come in early just to save a couple thousand dollars. So I I think so. I think that's true. I mean, it comes in the form of, you know, one startup we were helping the CEO said we could see around the corners. You know, it, it, of course, we can't see around the corners, but we can pattern match and we, we've seen a lot of what's going on. But more specifically, I, I think we end up with the better valuations for companies over the long term because of the, the way we help them. We help think about venture debt versus not venture debt. Uh, we help think about like key investments. So I think so. <laughs> I'd like to say that that's true. No, I, I'm, I'm sure that that's true. And I think that's one of those things that, you know, you just got to if you're going to go swing big, you're going to go build a big business. You need to think about how to provide the right, get the right strategic people on board in the early days. And I think that, you know, you guys provide a really valuable way, you know, a service for that to obviously to get them in early while they're in pre-seed and then help them grow as they move into uh, the later stages. So question for you, what are some of the things that you're seeing in the world today? Like what are, if, if I'm a startup that's kind of in that 10 to 15 person area and I'm looking for a CFO, what are the problems that I'm thinking about? Like what are the big things you're seeing in the, in the world that? we should be thinking about? You know, that's probably about the stage when there's you know, thoughts about a fundraise and maybe a series A. If it's a seed stage at that point, it may be a bit of a different conversation. It may... Well, let's start there. Yeah, let's let's talk about seed first and then we'll work away. Okay. Uh, well, one, one thing that's worth the conversation is, you know, convertible debt, safe, priced round for fundraising. Oh, yeah. The, which instrument do I use conversation? This is definitely... A hot topic. So yeah, let's. I'd love to hear your thoughts on safe versus a convertible versus price round. <laughs> well, if somebody's raising, let's say, two fifty k to seven fifty, there there was a time I remember before the safe note it used to be called convertible equity. By the way, when it came out before the safe note. And so, what is a safe? Let's yeah, let's start with that. Like, what is? How do you define what a safe is? So that's something that the Y Combinator came out with. It literally was something that was called convertible equity before that, but they renamed it. And gosh, I can't even remember what the acronym stands for. But what it represents is for somebody that's familiar with a convertible note, so the back end of a convertible note, a convertible note is an instrument that says, Mr. Investor, I will pay you as if you're loaning me money. I will pay you debt for you giving me cash, right? So you give me $100,000, I'll pay you at this point, honestly, I don't even know what the market rate is, but we have that. I'll pay you a 6% interest rate for a year and a half. And at the end of the year and a half, either pay you everything back, it might say, or or it might be silent to that. It may be two years, that sort of thing. But it's structured as a note. Like it's structured as if there's this thing that I'm going to pay you an interest rate on and I'm going to pay you back for. And then should there be between now and then a financing, I raise money at a priced round, then that note converts into the priced round, usually at some discount and sometimes with a cap, like saying the price round, if it goes above 10 million, I convert it 10 million, right? Even if it's a $20 million round, it might have a cap of 10 million. The problem with a convertible note is you technically can force a company into bankruptcy. Yeah, it's debt, right? I mean, you actually have debt, even if the intention is for it to convert to equity in the future, when push comes to shove, it's still debt. There's a deed. There's, you know, there's all the note that's all, it's really debt. That's right. That's right. That's right. And our experience is it often takes longer to raise money than a startup thinks. And they'll say, oh, we'll pay this off. This ends in a year and a half. And you're like, oh, we'll for sure raise a price round between that now and then. And so often it, that doesn't happen. Yeah. And then you have these painful discussions with investors about, extending it, you know, what are you going to do? How are you going to negotiate it? And if you've got a a cap table filled with like 10 plus 20 or so, whatever angels, you got to negotiate with each one and figure out how you're going to extend it. And you can't reach them because he's in Bali and it's really painful. And maybe somebody's mad at you and they don't want to sign Yeah, and it can hold everything up. 
I can speak from personal experience on this one. We had we had one of our investors die, and then we were trying to negotiate with the estate on a convert, and it was just a pain. You know, the son wanted his money back, and it was just a it's just a mess. So I lived through that one. Yeah, yeah, and that son can technically demand the money back, and if you don't have the cash, put you into bankruptcy, or you've got a legal issue they have to disclose to the investors. And it's just, in my opinion, it's massively contrary to the intent. The intent of the investment is to say, here, I'll give you some money. We don't really know what the company's worth, or we're so small with our investment that it's not appropriate to price you, but we're going to convert to equity. And we think it's fair that we're giving you the money right now. In return, we get a little better terms than the priced round, whether that's the discount, whether that's, you know, that's some of what, what the interest rate's trying to accomplish or, or some other mechanism, but you know, there's, there's a trade. It's not, it's not intended to run somebody into bankruptcy. It's intended to behave a lot like equity. And so that's what the safe note or what was previously called convertible equity is intended to do. The safe note essentially says, I'm gonna give you this money. When you do a price round, I'm gonna get a discount. I might have a cap on it. Right? So those are the two typical terms, a discount to the next to the next round and or a cap. And that's just it. Like, you know, you know, it's not I'm not going to force you into bankruptcy. I can't. That's not what this thing does. And it just sits there until the price round is raised. So really what I'm hearing is the investors have given up, you know, the ability to put, you know, that additional leverage of it being debt. So a safe note is actually more entrepreneurial friendly. Is that, a, is that a safe note? Well, safe note, yes. A safe note is more entrepreneurial friendly. That's true because you don't have the potential of putting them into bankruptcy or this debt concept. In, in my opinion, it's not appropriate to hold startups beholden to a debt instrument. I agree. And then so it does actually fit a lot better for it to be an, an equity type instrument like this. I just think it's, you know, the reason that the debt instrument is held on to is, first of all, we didn't have convertible equity for a while. People tried to figure out what to do for, for startups when it wasn't a price round, and they changed the debt instrument into this. It was a good move. Yeah. But now people have said, hey, that doesn't totally make sense. What about this convertible equity thing? And there's a lot of investors that just haven't changed their mindset. Yeah. And it's unfortunate, I think, because it puts a startup into a situation where in some circles, do you just go with the convertible note, take the risk on the bankruptcy thing because it gives you a wider field of investors, or do you go with the convertible equity? Yeah. And if you're in a situation where your investors are going to put you into bankruptcy, like, I mean, it's not like they're really going to get much out of it. Although, I mean, I guess there are certain circumstances where there may be IP or other things, but generally I'm with you that it, the incentives seem misaligned there. That you know, you want early stage investors to be incentive aligned. So being equity holders is the best way to do that. That said, you know, if it's too early, how are you really going to negotiate the value of a company at a pre-stage stage? It's really tough. It's kind of like you know, I mean, there's a range, but is it? And isn't it much more expensive to go through a priced round? I mean, a safe notes. It is. Yes. Also it's much cheaper. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Safe notes cheaper. I don't know how you value a company if. Or if it's even appropriate to value a company, um, if you're putting in, if, if they're raising 500, sub 500K, it's, it just, I, I don't view it as, as personally as appropriate, but I, I can see if it's a sophisticated investor, like a sophisticated micro VC, I could see that. But otherwise, I, I'm not sure I, I see it as too particularly appropriate. That said, there's a side conversation about what's better for the company. There are lots of scenarios where it is actually, I think, better for the company to take a price round than a safe note or a convertible. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So even at that stage, so what what would be a scenario where you know a price round would be a better choice than a safe note? A future down round, or even more flat, though you don't have much of an up up round, because the safe note and the convertible, both of them, their amount is fixed. So if somebody, if you get a 500k investment, it's 500k when it converts. If you raise a price round, and by the way, it also converts with a, with a, at a premium, potentially a, a max, a potentially a valuation cap as well. But if it, let's say it's got a 20% discount that you get. Well, if you only increase your value by 10%, 20%, or you have a down round, uh, you're sucking it up big time through a safe note. Yeah. How many entrepreneurs are thinking that they're going to do down rounds though? I mean, there's a lot of 
enthusiasm and maybe hubris <laughs> in the entrepreneurs. I mean, no one goes into raising a round thinking, gosh, I'm going to raise a down round next time. Everybody thinks you're going to raise valuation. So, I mean, how much you, is there a, is there an assessment around that? I mean, that, that seems prudent. I just, it seems counter to all the entrepreneurs I know. They think their baby's not ugly. Totally counter. Yeah. You know, and boy, that enthusiasm is wonderful. That's why this startups exist. I mean, that's why we have such creative potential. It's, it's amazing. And of course the, the CFO tends to think more about what the downside is, right? Hopefully our enlightened CFOs that, that work at Berkland are growth CFOs, right? We don't, we, don't try, we don't try to optimize for expenses. That's not the idea. The idea is to optimize for investment and where things are going. But we do think about some of the downside. And what I'll tell you is far fewer companies make it out and with an up, up round than I think people realize. And a lot of them, you know, so then you say, okay, fine, but then I just go under. That's not what happens. Like there's a lot of them that keep going and keep trying to raise more money. And so it's, it's sad when you see like just how crushed some entrepreneurs get because they're sitting on these fixed notes that, um, that they can't convert. And then, you know, some businesses do go, go under after a while, after a long period of time because of that overhang. Yeah. No, I look, I, I've been through that. I've seen that happen, you know, and I, I guess going back to this thing, you know, I, you know, uh, the CFO is not a downer to the no. CEO, CEO, right? <laughs> no, you're, it's like a, it's an important counterbalance, right? You know, because the CEO is like, this is amazing. Everything's great and visionary. And, you know, like you still have to get there and, you know, having that reality. And, and you know, to your point, if more companies, you know, don't quite go up rounds, then then maybe doing a price round makes, there's a, there's a real prudent reason why you might do a price round depending on the circumstances, you know, that, that's what I'm hearing. So, you know, there are some advantages to safe, and this is just like anything, I guess, you know, trying to match the fundraising vehicle to the opportunity is really the conversation, right? Like how do you match the right thing? Yes, I agree. And I'm trying to think about like, what would I recommend, right? To, to help with a, a takeaway. And I think I want to say, I would say, and this is honestly off the cuff, it's maybe something that we should publish about as Berkeley, but off the cuff, I think I would say if I thought I could get away with a safe without too onerous of a cap on the safe, I'd go that route uh, with a 500 to up to maybe a million raise. I would not do convertible debt. I would try very hard to shy away from that. And I would alternatively, after the safe, go to a price round is what I believe my preference is. But I do think because I start my own business, maybe I've got a little bit of that hubris that you mentioned. It's yeah. <laughs> good. Maybe you need that's it. Why I didn't want to do a price. I'm not sure. But I've just seen so much with the convertible debt that I don't love that instrument. Yeah. I, I recognize the reality that some angels just haven't released that. And so some companies may not want to decrease their funding potential. But otherwise, I don't, I don't like the note. Yeah, and I think this is, I mean, well, a couple things. I mean, you know, in our, you know, the, the Reno ecosystem is definitely different than Silicon Valley. And, you know, I think a lot of these ecosystems outside of the Bay Area have different levels of sophistication. And there's definitely different dynamics at play. And, but it's really good to hear from you because you're basically in the major leagues of this. And I go, not everything translates to these other communities, but... To really see how the professionals are doing this is really helpful. There's a lot to be learned from that. So I, I definitely appreciate you sharing that wisdom. I guess one last question about safes. You know, if you're going to, a cap is really the the maximum valuation, right? So you're sort of agreeing to set, say, hey, even in the future, I'm not going to, my company won't be worth more than $2 million. I mean, aren't you kind of effectively setting a price round? Or how do you, how do you think about, you know, the cap relative to like a priced yeah, that's a, actually a really good question because it does get confused, I believe, by a lot of people. First of all, it, it doesn't mean, let's say you have a cap of $2 million, which, by the way, in my reaction is that's really low. But let's say you had a $2 million cap and you know you go to raise later. You can raise at a higher round. You, know, you could raise at a $5 million round, but the people who invested in the safe are going to come in as two, at $2 million, right? So... And that will probably dilute the founders because if it's a VC, the VC is going to say, I'm not going to take the dilution, right? The VC's terms, VC's terms are, we're going to invest X amount and get Y percent. And by the way, you also need to create an option pool of you know Z percent. 
So if you, if you break that down, they're saying, look, if you've got some weird terms with safes or convertible debt, then you figure that out. I'm still getting Y percent for my dollars. So you're going to take the dilution. Now, of course, a hot startup has all kinds of negotiating leverage, but generally speaking, that's the case. So there's a whole nother conversation for investors about whether or not they actually end up getting the deal that they signed up for. Yeah. Sometimes those get renegotiated in the price in the later price round. Well, and that's a that's a really good conversation because, you know, you go in this thing, you think you have contracts, right? You've got this contract, it says a certain thing. And then, you know, what I've noticed is now you're going to the next round, you need the money, you've got a big VC, they're going to come in and say, hey, you know, I'm going to take this percentage of your company for this amount. But you have all these problems, you know, you got to go figure it out. Well, all those things that you agreed to before, now you have to go, you know, unwind. Hence the reason why it's good to have a strategic advisor day yeah, one, sure. because, because, you know, I mean, if you want that VC money, you know, that come, you may take that extra dilution out of the founder's hides and that's unpleasant. Now, obviously you can't get so low that you have no incentive, but you know, when push comes to shove. If I could just say, you know, so yes, I do think one of the reasons why we can be helpful in like a situation like that, for example, is we, we know what we've seen elsewhere. So we can have a conversation like, let's just say we have, there's a $5 million round and the VC says I want 20% of the company and you're looking at your safe note that's got a $2 million cap and you took, you know, 500K in the $2 million cap and you're, and you're realizing, my goodness, I'm gonna, I'm gonna retain 40% of the company. Actually, I've got three co-founders, so we're each gonna retain, you know, 13% of the company. And I haven't even gotten to a series B yet, you know? And, and so how should I think about that? And, and we at least know like how often are, uh, I don't, I, I'm not trying to sell us, but and it, we know like how often are the safe notes renegotiated? Like, how should I approach that renegotiation? Should I push back on the VC? Um, how should I think about that? So that gets in, into it. So, so often somebody thinks, oh, I've got a $2 million cap. So first of all, again, the $2 million cap is on the safe, not on the later raise, but you know, whatever that price round is, but you think, oh, I've got a $2 million cap. Therefore my valuation is 2 million. That's not exactly true. It does. You do have to think a little bit about valuation. Yes, valuation plays into thinking about what that cap is. But think of the cap as an option. The investors now have an option, kind of, to not go over two million in that future valuation, right? So they just got a benefit from the cap. They are not investing in a price round at two million. They are taking a safe note that will not go over two million in price. But by the way, the safe note also has a you know discount, a 20% discount. So if you raise at 1.5 million, they're going to come in at, you know, do my math real quick, somewhere around 1.2 million, right? Yeah. Even though, so they didn't invest in the price because if they've invested in a $2 million price, if you later raise at 1.2, 1.5, then those investors are going to take it in the hide. But in a safe, they're not. They're going to come in with their full 500K at a $1.2 million valuation. So they're getting a benefit from this two million cap. So what that translates into your real valuation is is something south of two million, something south of your cap. Yeah, that's your that's your true valuation. And it's, I think it's important to keep that in mind because a lot of entrepreneurs they think first of all they think that's the cap, and then they come out and when they when they talk to a sophisticated investor VC now let's say you you have a, a safe that's got a fifteen million dollar cap. And then you come talk to a VC and you say, you know, I want to raise money And the normal, maybe the normal, uh, this round normally is a $12 million round. And they say, okay, great. We'll give you a $12 million valuation. And you're like, no, but my safe is 15. Therefore I'm worth at least 15. No, that max on the safe was not what your valuation was. And, and so I think that's important to, to keep in mind. Which is interesting. So, you know, just in terms of negotiating, obviously you have a lot of different dials. And so, you know, give it, you think you got a better deal because you have a higher cap, which depending on the situation can work for or against you is what I'm hearing. And then the discounts. So, I mean, at the end of the day, this is where, you know, and you got to, and you have to think a couple rounds down too, right? You have to think about your own ownership downstream and, you know, this gets pretty complicated and this is the kind of stuff that, you know, is critical. You're making critical decisions and you really want to be just running your business, but this can really affect your outcome at the end of the day. I mean, I know a lot of entrepreneurs that get, all the way through this and sell and yeah okay fine they get you know life-changing money but it's not like really life-changing money and that was driven by some decisions at this seed right. stage 
you know, you think maybe you're going to sell when you eventually sell, you'll have, I don't know, what, what do some people think? 20% if they're probably, if they're pessimistic enough, I'm not, I'm not sure, right? They, maybe they think they'll have 50%. And in reality, most of these uh, companies, when, when they exit, they're looking at 5%, you know, something like that. If they do it well, it could be north of that. Yes. Yeah. Which is pretty, you know, again, I think, you know, if you have 5% of a billion dollars, that's not a bad number. That mm -hmm. said, that's a pretty out of the, you know, norm exit. So it's just, you know, and I guess this is, you know, maybe an interesting time to contrast a little bit about running a business that doesn't require venture funding. I mean, you started your own company and, you know, you're not a venture backed startup. And just, again, this just this discussion of like, do you own 100% of your company versus, you know, giving up company? This, that's always an interesting company or a discussion to have with entrepreneurs. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, like, and if you could exit at 50 million and hold, you know, somewhere between this big range, but somewhere between 20 and 70%, depending on how you did it, maybe that's dramatically different than exiting at 500 million and holding 5% or less uh, and all that you went through to do that. Yeah. And so how do you help advise people on that? I mean, that's a really, I mean, obviously I think, I guess my short answer to that myself, my own question, I'm curious, is it really depends on the opportunity. I mean, if you're sitting on an Uber, that's not a company that you can really hold 70% of and have that exit likely. I mean, that's a play right. that's, right. A, you know, so really matching, you know, the company to the opportunity, you know, that's like right. in my fertility business, our business, I mean, it was a pretty small market. I mean, we needed venture money. But in the end of the day, we probably could have sold it if we got it really going, maybe a hundred million. I mean, it wasn't going to be a billion dollar company, probably. Yeah, I mean, totally. It's a, it's a function of, you know, the size of the market. If it's a really big market, then you tend more towards thinking that you need to raise venture money to be able to attack it effectively. Um, it's also a function of how fast you think people are going to attack the market. Like, will others attack the market really fast? Or is it the kind of market that could move slowly and build relatively slowly? Like... Uh, for example, I mean, we're in professional service, which naturally is a little different in general. Um, but our market is thankfully actually much bigger than I expected it to be. <laughs> it's probably sub a billion, but it's more than 100 billion, which is pretty cool. But it's not a billion plus. So it's not like this big market, right? So it probably doesn't need VC money, at least the specific, you know, finance for startups that we help. But also as a professional service business, and generally speaking, you're probably not going to see somebody come in and change it overnight. And so also probably doesn't need VC. Uh, I have seen others that unfortunately I can't, I can't think of off the top of my head, but others that are non-professional service that you also kind of look at and you say, yeah, maybe it doesn't really need VC. Um, so there is something somewhere maybe more south of somebody might say, oh, it's obvious professional service. That's it. I, I will say that we've had a few competitors in our space. Uh, one in the past that I can think of and one of right now that probably most people can think of that are, are raising venture. It's arguably a professional service business. I know they're talking about AI and it makes you think, you know, is it a venture funded business? But anyway, so I, I don't know where I'm going with that. I think there's a spectrum, but I think you also got a gut check. I mean, I don't know this market, this business that we're in. I'm not sure it's a venture fundable business. I just don't think it grows that fast. Yeah. But you brought up AI. I mean, this is the big concern, right? I mean, I, you know, I was, are you worried about your business being displaced by AI or is it, I mean, it seems like it would automate some of what you're doing and make your company more efficient, not, you know, it's not an existential risk to, to your company. Yeah. I mean, I think that, so AI is coming for bookkeeping and, and accounting for sure. I'm not sure how it comes at CFO at least not for a while. Um, so I am worried about it for bookkeeping and accounting, or we do think about it, that's for sure. But I mean, there's such a range of outcomes, one of which is exactly what you said. A potential outcome is we just move up the value stack. You know, some of the routine stuff that happens just gets done. I mean, when we came in and started this, our accounting, there was Expensify, Bill.com, QuickBooks Online. That was really coming out. We were early in that, and we, we adapted that right away. And, you know, there were a lot of our competitors who wouldn't do it because it got rid of a lot of their, what they would charge for, but we just charged a little bit more and, you know, into the total bill was less and it raised efficiency, but we just moved up the value stack. So yeah. that's one possibility. Of course, I, re I recognize that there are a number of possibilities, but sure. I also don't think that AI is where everybody thinks it is yet. It may get there. 
but you know, generally you have to train AI with a lot of transactions and small businesses don't have a lot. Well, and you would know, which is kind of an inside joke, but we'll just leave it that as a... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <the>, uh, <laughs> <a joke. laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I think AI is coming to everybody's profession in some capacity or another. And, yeah, you know, sure. we'll, sure. we'll see. But so actually I, I have a, you know, as going back to kind of, we talked a lot about the, you know, the seed, seed stage companies kind of going to series A companies. You know, you mentioned before venture debt, and that's a relatively new thing in my world. Like I, when I was running Priya, there was just the beginnings of venture debt, but it seems like venture debt is more popular these days. Can you maybe describe a little bit about what venture debt is and where it's applicable? It's, on, it's more of a later stage company. Yes. I mean, I, I do think that it's, it's generally a better tool for series B or, or, or bigger companies. In some cases, a series A company might be a decent tool. It's broadly speaking, it's a provider, either a bet at a bank or a venture debt company giving cash to a startup under debt terms that gets repaid over the period of maybe three years or something like that. And, and then in addition, they usually receive warrants or options basically. So they basically build, get an option writer. And sometimes the company doesn't have to take the debt right away. Cause usually you've got a lot of cash and you don't need the debt then, but it gives you an option for, for the debt later. And I know I was talking about avoiding debt, but as you get to series B, C, and sometimes a, You've usually got a foundation upon which you know that you're going to get some some form of cash flow for the business. You may not be cash flow positive, but you're going to get some sort of form. You've got something that you can predict against. And so that's usually the ability to predict against that gives you the opportunity potentially of bringing in venture debt. Where venture debt is is healthy is when it can be used to extend runway. Um, and in the healthy form so that the company can execute for a few more months before raising money in a much, you know, sort of increasing execution so that by the time they raise money, they raise money at a higher valuation than they would have before using the venture debt. Got it. You usually have to put it in place way before then. But if you've got it in place, then you can extend runway ideally to, to run better and better and better so that you get a higher valuation. That's the healthy version of it. Yeah, there's an argument that there's also a healthy version of it if you hit a pivot point at the point when you would raise money because you're going to raise it a down round, and the venture that just gives you like a little bit more you know run room you know an option, <laughs> and see if you can pull it off that that pivot off. The unhealthy use of venture debt is if the startup just goes and starts spending more because they've got the debt you just from day one right away starts start spending more. I mean there is a there is an amount that you should spend based on their raise, and if you spend more than that. You're probably being too free with your cash and, and you're probably not getting the return on the investment that you should get. So the unheard that healthy version is you spend too much or another unhealthy version is you hit a wall with it and the, you know, you've got to be, you've got to make these payments, you hit bankruptcy or something like that. It just boom, cuts you off. Usually venture debt providers are flexible. They're somewhat flexible. They're not as bad. They're usually, you know, they're sophisticated investors in general. So if you, if you, for example, come to them and say, I can't, I can't pay this off, they will usually talk to you. Whereas sometimes some angels that are taking convertible notes will not, and it, it can shut somebody off. But that said, it still can be a negative outcome. It's still debt. So the shorter version than all of that is venture debt can accentuate the upside and accentuate the downside. That's basically what it does. It's an accelerator. And yeah, which makes sense. I mean, and I can see why, you know, especially if you need, you know, you want that capacity, you're not quite at, a, at, at the next big valuation milestone to have that debt is, you know, let, way less dilutive than, you know, equity capital right at that stage. So you're really trying to get to a higher valuation. But, you know, again, you still carry with it the debt risk, which is always out there. And it's not, I mean, and this is, you know, at that stage of company, you're probably, I mean, you maybe have some bank debt, maybe, maybe not. I mean, I never had much success with, with banks as a startup. Yeah, this is really your only form, right? I mean, venture debt, if you're looking for debt. So it's kind of an interesting, I mean, what is it, how expensive? I mean, what kind of warrants do you usually pay on something like that? Is it 5%, 20%? I don't even know. So there, there are two basic forms of venture debt. There's, there's a bank provided, like a Silicon Valley bank or Rich Bank or, you know, Signature. Typically, it's a startup-focused bank. There's a form of venture debt that comes from those that group, and then there are venture debt funds. And they're actually the cost of the debt is very different 
So the banks, you can think of the cost of the debt as roughly on the order of sort of 8 to 12% IRR. So it'll probably be some low interest rate, call it 6%, <laughs> seems to be my favorite right now, 4 to 6%. And then they'll require warrant riders. And, and usually what they'll do is you can put it in place to where you don't have to pull the cash right away. So you don't have to be paying the interest, but you usually have to pay the warrants right away. Or you might stagger them. If, if, you, if you really have really good negotiating leverage, then you can pay half the warrants or even sometimes south of that right away. And the remainder only if you pull the venture debt. Got it. Um, so it, there is a way of setting it up so that it really is quite low cost. It's just a wee bit of warrants and then you pull it if you need it. And then that's great. Right. And, and I've used that in two different companies. It's, it's been fantastic in one company. It literally was exactly what I said, where they, they were able to run for a little bit longer. They ran their run rate up, uh, their valuation up dramatically because of it. Cause you know what the valuation, the valuation multiples were. Um, and it was fantastic. It was well worth it. In the other company, they never accessed it, but it gave them negotiating leverage. Yeah. So that like, when you're negotiating and you're raising money, you know you're not going to hit the wall because you can pull your venture debt. So those were fantastic, and they were bank-driven ones. Um, but you, you have to pull venture debt early. I mean, not pull it, but you have to set it up early. You can't wait until you need it. Do you need like a tier one venture partner, or do you have to have tier one venture investment to really qualify for venture debt? Like if you had a bunch of angels and for for the bank financed ones, they most of them bridge banks tends to look at the, the fundamentals of the business. So you, sometimes bridge bank is, is the exception, but for the most part, banks invest based on the VC. So they fund venture debt based on the VC. If you don't have VCs, don't even bother. Which is interesting because it definitely puts, you know, I guess that, so that it's really limited, this, this type of, you know, financing vehicle is really only limited to probably tier one VCs too, or tier one or tier two VCs. Tier one or two, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, that's why it doesn't cost very much. That's part of the yeah. You know. um, but yeah, it's tier one or two, and then from there you get into the other venture debt providers. So the venture debt providers that they, you know, what they do is they provide venture debt. That's their business. They're not a bank. Um, generally speaking, they'll provide more than a bank will provide with more flexible terms in general, but higher cost. So their cost is pushing 20%, 18%, 20%. At that point, you start to think it may be better just to raise equity than to raise venture debt. But it's a heavier warrant coverage. It's a heavier interest rate. It's um, that sort of thing. But this is the kind of stuff that, you know, it just really speaks to the sophistication of this market or the, the overall, you know, how the venture market venture industry has changed over the years, new, you know, new vehicles, ways to help support entrepreneurs and different. So it's, I mean, I'm excited to see this enter. more options seem better, but there's also complexity, hence the need to truly understand the vehicle you're working with. And so I guess one of my questions to you around this is, I mean, you work with clients all over the country. Do you see a difference in terms of sophistication or access to these types of, you know, vehicles? I mean, anything like safes and in different parts of the country, or do you think the companies in different markets have similar access? Yeah, fair. Uh, you know, of course, you know, probably everybody's reading this. COVID is starting to change this dynamic because VCs have had to learn how to fund companies without meeting entrepreneurs. And therefore, they're looking outside of the core markets. Prior to COVID, there was absolutely a difference between what you saw in the Bay Area and New York versus outside of those two markets. Of course, there are always exceptions. We have some great high potential clients outside of those two markets, but it was certainly a lot harder to access top tier VCs, to access you know this, these venture debt products we talked about, to access service providers that are used to startups that are shooting for the moon. So it was, it was definitely harder outside of the Bay Area and New York. And, and also, honestly, in, in what I observed, you saw a less of a sort of a percentage of proclivity for startups. They were shooting for the moon outside of those two markets as well. Yeah. You, tend, you tended to see more startups that just, it, you could tell in how they were thinking they're shooting for doubles outside of San Francisco, New York as a generalization. Of course, they're exception. And it, it was a little interesting to me because as I would talk with some startups, I felt like they couldn't see it. Yeah. They didn't realize they were hitting a double. And maybe I 
can't express myself very well, but I, I wasn't able to convince them. I'm like, but you could see there's just a completely different paradigm. Yeah. That. Like, oh, I maybe I can, you know, things like maybe I can hit profitability in a year, or maybe I should, should I get to profit? Or, hey, we grew 50%. We're going to grow our team 50%. Isn't that awesome? Or, you know, these are, that, that's in general, that's small ball thinking. And, and it's just not even a reality in a lot of what you hear in, the, in San Francisco and New York. It's in San Francisco, it's New York, you're going you're, you're gonna to raise a bang up valuation in, in, you know, in another six months to a year. You're doubling your team. Who, who the hell knows when you're going to be profitable? That's not even what you're talking about. You know, you're looking at the metrics. And again, it, this is changing, I think. And yeah. There are always exceptions. Well, I think, you know, I think this is great insight, honestly. And, you know, what I, I do think COVID has accelerated this. I mean, obviously, I'm someone who's actively working to raise the sophistication level of the Reno ecosystem. And because I think that what you're, what you see there is, is a function of the overall ecosystem. You know, our mentors and our investors and all those, which are all great, you know, maybe they didn't come from that market. And so they just, everybody has a different set of expectations. And as That's what right. I've noticed, over the last, especially as a result of COVID, we have all of these other people moving in from the Bay Area, Silicon Valley bank executives, CEOs that have been around, you know, they just bring another perspective and they become mentors and they become, you know, part of the ecosystem. So they, it's actually like kind of a rising tide. My point is, is that what you see in front of you can dictate what's reality. And in a market like San Francisco and New York, you just see people playing ball at a whole other level. Yeah, and you know, you hear people talking about like, you know, their company doubled or three X, you know, and you hear that frequently in the area, you know, that becomes your your reference point, your reality. And if you live in an area where you hear people companies talking about the you know, growing fifty percent, exiting for fifty million, that sort of thing, that's a, just a different reality to your point. That's the that's you know, so your frame of reference, unless you're a special kind of person, your frame of reference just becomes different because those are the people that you're around. And by the way, I'm not necessarily saying it's bad to grow 50%. That's, I'm excited that my company grows 50% a year. It's just it's just if you're trying to create a company that's going to be big, you know, like a startup. And I definitely am with you that growth and the scalable growth at this, you know, at all costs is not great. It's just it's more about I think perception drives reality and the more people that you know come in with different experiences, it sort of just overall raises the sophistication level of the environment. And that's great, you know, because you can still go for doubles. But if you really need to swing big, and you didn't know how to get there, now you have people there that can help you. I mean, in fact, I had a conversation today with a, an attorney in town who came from Wilson, he's originally from here, came back here, and now he's going to bring both his desire to see Reno grow, and his expertise of how to do deals at the quality level of Wilson to our community. That's like a, a you know, a, a step function up. Same thing with a gentleman That's from awesome. Silicon Valley Bank that moved here. I mean, those things are going to be additive. Now they're pathways. Again, you can always choose to take your company however you want, but before you just didn't have the right people or the advice. So that I think that overall that's, and, and to see that across the country, this is actually, in my opinion, what the original, you know, part of what the original Startup America was about. Like, how do we take what's going on disproportionately in New York and San Francisco and create that same opportunity across the country? It took a global pandemic to do it. <laughs> but now I think this is an opportunity for startup communities all across America to raise because people are taking that sophistication in their networks and going out to all these different communities, which offer great quality of life. But you shouldn't have to trade, in my opinion, a great quality of life for being successful in your business. And so maybe, you know, maybe this is the great equalizer. I don't know. I'm very I'm we'll optimistic. I, I, I hope so. I mean, it'll be great. We'll unlock so much for the US to be able to do that sort of sort of thing, right? For those that want it, right? I think people still need to, under, to, to gut check themselves about what's, you know, what kind of ride they want to be in for. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah, we agree. So what's next for Berkland Associates? I mean, you guys are at the top of your, you know, <laughs> top of your field. I mean, I'm sure there's still places, there's still more mountains to climb, but what are you thinking about for, for your business for the next few years? I do think we've still got a good run to make on finance. Um, we're strong in the Bay Area. We're pretty good in New York and we're growing outside of the two. So we've got a lot geographically we can still build. You know, at the beginning of the program, you, you mentioned other sectors within VC funding that we can still build. So we've got a lot we can still do in finance. And even in the sectors we're already in, there's so much. And this is a very fragmented market. 
that we are in. And even we, as a bigger player, I mean, we're we're under ten percent for sure of the market. It's it's super fragmented. So there's a lot that we could do. And we've recently launched an HR service. So we now also do serve HR people ops for startups. Um, so that's going to be, I think, a big growth opportunity uh, for us. The, the very very short version is I see elements of that now compared with where, you know, when I started or maybe a little after I started the finance practice, I see similar elements. So I think there's a real growth opportunity there. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, I'm, I have to say just one of my great joys is hearing you give updates on your company because, you know, I think you've reached entrepreneurial nirvana, Jeff, honestly, I, I'm convinced <laughs> of this, right? You know, you can go into your company and turn a few dials and turn this and it's like, oh, it grows 30% and it does this. And, you know, I think you have reached a stage where the business really works for you. And that's, you know, outside of this high growth, high tech, that's really an amazing thing. If you can build a company that works for you and provides you all that you need financially and otherwise, I think that's really a lot of people's dream. And I just, I know you have reached that and it's just, it's been a real joy to watch you do that. I think it's exciting. Oh, thanks, Doug. I appreciate it. Yeah. I like to focus on building a business that eventually won't need me. So yeah. I think with that focus forces me into having a business that like you described, you can kind of turn dials and, and you it's not just crushing me. And then also I feel like I've learned over the past five, 10 years to try to focus on my strengths and try to let other people do what I'm weak at and they are strong at. Yeah. And that, that helps a lot too. Well, I think that just speaks to your humility. And, you know, I, I've, like I said, I've had a ringside seat to all your development going through, you know, Stegen and all the work we do in EO. I just, you are masterful at implementing the things that you've learned in your business. And it's really cool to see it, you know, pay off. So it's great. I just, Thank it's you. really I fun. That. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate you taking some time. I mean, I think we, you know, I, I think we got into the weeds a lot, but I, I got to say, I think that there's a lot to this financing topic and a lot of needs for early stage startups. I think there's a, a lot of value and I just appreciate you uh, sharing some of your wisdom. If people are looking to uh, bring on a CFO or a bookkeeper, how could they find you? Uh, well, our website is berklandassociates.com, so berklandassociates.com. And I guess we'd have to spell it, but you know that's a great way. We've got an inquiry form there. Of course, I can be emailed, emailed directly as well, jberkland at berklandassociates.com. I think you can do a web search and you probably find it pretty easily. I think we come up to the top on Berkeley Associates. Maybe if you do fractional CFO, I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you're easy to find. And if not, it, you know, you can always you. reach out to me <laughs> and I will definitely recommend people go find you. So, well, thanks again, Jeff. I really appreciate your time today. It was been a great, great pleasure and I look forward to seeing you here in the near future. Awesome. Thanks, Doug.